This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Aletta Margolis, founder and executive director of Inspire Teaching, a nonprofit with a mission to build a better school experience for children through innovative teacher training. Inspired Teaching helps teachers become full collaborators in school improvement and reform, envisioning teachers as instigators of thought, imagining a world in which every child is taught by an inspired teacher. Aletta is also the founder of Inspired Teaching's Demonstration School, a charter school that implements and demonstrates the organization's educational philosophy and theories. Aletta has earned a bachelor's degree from Brown in theater, speech, and dance, and a master's in education and social policy from Northwestern University. Aletta served as a professor of education at American University before founding Inspired Teaching in 1995. Among her many honors, she has received the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Prize in 2012, honorable mention in the Excel Award for Nonprofit Management in 2009, recognition as a woman to watch in Washingtonian Magazine in 2006, an Ashoka Fellowship, that's an experience we share, and a Paul Harris Fellowship. Aletta, we're so grateful that you can join us today. And I wonder if you could begin by telling us the story of how your work got started. Absolutely, and it's my pleasure to be here as well. My work got started in my first job after college when I came back to my hometown of Washington, D.C. and taught high school students in the juvenile justice system. And I was teaching them a playwriting class through which the young people in my class wrote a play about their city, about Washington, D.C., in the year 3000, after the city had been destroyed, and this, they were writing this play at a time when the crack cocaine epidemic was, was extremely problematic here in D.C. and when it was a really rough time to be a 17 or 18-year-old growing up in our city. And they wrote a play about a city that had been destroyed and rediscovered, and they, they were archaeologists going back in time to find out what had gone wrong and what could have been done to save their city. And through the course of this year-long class for, for my students, my students not only learned to read and write, many of them started the year not reading and writing, but because they were so motivated by the project we were doing, they built their skills and they, built their, they learned to read and write. But they also posed meaningful and practical solutions to the problems that they and their, their friends were facing in their community and presented them to the city council, to their families, to teachers, to other community members. And I witnessed the transformation of the, the young people in our program from people who were really on the verge of, of choosing a life of crime and, and having a, a, a limited opportunities to becoming really creative, productive members of society. And I realized that the young people in my program would never have ended up in the juvenile justice system if they had had a different kind of teaching in the first place one that was authentic and engaged and gave them real problems to solve and treated them with respect and demanded high engagement from them. And that experience convinced me to become a teacher. And I went and got my master's, as you said, and taught for several years in Chicago and loved teaching in the classroom, but experienced a, a real sense of complacency among my colleagues who were teaching at the time, sense that especially for urban communities, um, as long as the kids stay out of trouble and 
do reasonably well in school. It's, it's good enough. It's all we can ask for. And from my frustration with that complacency came the desire to engage teachers as partners to rethink our profession and to rethink how the classroom experience works for students. And so I founded Center for Inspired Teaching in 1995. Such a creative uh, concept, that whole idea of engaging students and putting on a play. Was that inspired by some of your work in theater and, and the performing arts, that, that particular approach that launched the concept? Yeah, what, what I had learned as an actor and as a director was to ask great questions. And that's what I believe a good teacher does. At Inspired Teaching, we believe great teachers are instigators of thought. They don't deliver a curriculum. They don't just provide information. They get kids to think and figure out problems, figure out solutions, to figure out both problems and solutions to problems. And so um, in the world of teaching playwriting, I was challenging my students to use their voices, to use their literacy skills to suggest solutions to a problem. And that's the same strategy that our teachers use today at Inspired Teaching. They engage students in what we call a wonder experiment learn cycle. And you can do this with a three-year-old and with an 18-year-old and, and anybody else where you offer students a meaningful problem to solve. They wonder about it. They experiment. They figure something out. They learn it. And then they generate a new question. And that's, that's our, our teacher's job is to make sure kids are continually engaged in this wonder experiment learn cycle. I wonder if you could share with us one of the things that I think is terrific about your work is that through all of this experience and working with teachers to make them be instigators of thought, you now have this wonderful model which really tries to pull together in a thematic way the elements of inspired teaching. And I wonder if you could share uh, some of that model with us. I'm thinking of your focus on things like mutual respect mm -hmm. and joy and thinking of the student as an expert, that and, and as well as the four eyes, which are so provocative in terms of thinking about uh, uh, how to make teaching more inspiring. Yes, absolutely. We believe every child in school should be working toward building four eyes, and that is intellect, inquiry, imagination, and integrity. And you'll find this kind of instruction not so unusual in more affluent communities, but especially in low-income communities where school tends to be an experience that is rote learning and rigid uh, structure and harsh discipline. We are, we are looking to prove that it doesn't have to be that way, that kids can be building their intellect, inquiry, imagination, and integrity as they are learning their basics. So those are our four eyes. Those are our student goals. Mm -hmm. And we structure our classroom in order to achieve those four eyes around five core elements. And as you, you said, several of them. The first of our core elements is mutual respect. The next one is student as expert. Purpose, persistence, and action. Joy and multiple forms, multiple proof points of student learning. Mm. And so we look at those five core elements as a way of preparing teachers to build our four eyes in students. So mutual respect means not only, am, not, not only are there clear and high expectations in the classroom that the teacher has established, but that the students help to establish those expectations as well, and that student opinion and voice and ideas are valued right along with the teacher's ideas. And what that accomplishes is a much more motivated student body, kids who are behaving not because they want to get a sticker or they're afraid of getting detention, but kids who are behaving because they actually care about their community. Student as expert speaks to the wonder experiment learn cycle I mentioned a moment ago, where the student's job is to figure out how to solve the problem. So if a student is trying to 
multiply fractions and gets it wrong. The teacher doesn't come in and say, oh, here's where you made a mistake. Let me show you what to do differently. The teacher says, what did you get? Does it make sense? What happened? What have you tried? What can you try next? And then I'll be back in five minutes to see if you figured it out. So the teacher's putting the student in the role of expert in giving the student the responsibility to solve problems instead of providing the answer for the student or telling the student how to get the answer. Um, purpose, persistence, and action means that the student is continuously engaged in learning, is struggle, is engaged in a pr productive struggle, is not necessarily doing problems that can be solved very quickly or very easily, but is able to struggle through an un unclear, unfamiliar problem, apply strategies learned, and keep working toward the resolution of that problem, even if it means going home at night saying, I haven't figured out the science experiment yet, but I'm going to come back tomorrow and keep working on it because, of course, professional scientists and mathematicians and historians don't solve every problem in a day. It takes right. a long time to, to really solve a problem. Joy, we feel, is an essential ingredient in every classroom. It's not a nice-to-have. It's a, it's a mandate that if you don't feel the joy of the pride of accomplishing something, of the pride of ownership of your work, you're missing a critical component of your education. And then the multiple forms, multiple forms of assessment means that in addition to test scores, we also want to see student work on the wall. We want students to be able to talk about what they're learning in an informal setting, in a formal setting. We want them to be able to express it in writing. We want them to be able to prove that they know and understand the information through multiple forms. So two follow-up questions. Um, a theme that comes through your work that's so powerful is this transformation in the role of the teacher from being somebody that delivers knowledge. You know, So this is obviously one very pervasive way of thinking about education that, hey, this is a delivery system. I'm up here to share a curriculum and, and get it inserted into the heads of students. And you really turned that whole thing on its head and said, we really have to think of the teacher almost like as... Uh, I, I sort of picture Socrates as like a really great question questioner, somebody that, as you said, stimulates thoughts and um, and challenges students to to learn on their own. Um, and so, my first question is about how do you help teachers really make that transformation? Because if you go out into schools today, you do still see a tremendous focus on the delivery of content and then the assessment of whether that content has been delivered and not really, uh, I don't think, quite as much focus on whether the students are good at problem solving and asking their own questions and developing their own learning capacity. So could you comment on that, on that challenge and how you've really helped teachers confront a reimagining of their role? Yeah, to enable teachers to reimagine their role, we have to do for teachers what we ask them to do for their students, and that is ask great questions. So we need to ask the teacher not, what can you do if you want the kid to memorize the periodic table? But you have to ask instead, what kind of an adult do you hope this fourth grader will be when she's 25 years old? We focus teachers on the long term. So if you're, if you're looking to help students become adults who can thrive, then you're going to teach in a very different way than if you're trying to get through the curriculum. So from a discipline, a discipline perspective, we might begin and say, what would you do if you wanted your students to follow the rules? And then after spending some time on that, we might ask a different question and say, what would you do if you wanted your students to thrive? And it's a very different approach to teaching and learning. So in our professional development for teachers, we begin with a shift in mindset 
and then a shift in practice. We don't introduce the new approach to practice, the new approach to, to the actual craft of teaching until we first have spent a great deal of time focused on a shift in mindset. And especially if you're teaching kids in high-poverty communities where they have not had a lot of academic success, a lot of teachers, though they, though they do in their hearts believe everybody can learn, a lot of us may enter the classroom thinking, well, these kids really, you know, I just need to, I don't have time for them to figure it out. I just have to tell them what they need to know, and we have to get through it as quickly as possible. What often will happen is the need for urgency in education can sometimes turn into panic, and panic is generally not a good way to plan a plan a curriculum or plan a plan to solve problem. So, if a, a lot of education reform efforts start from a place of panic, oh no, kids can't read. We got to make sure they learn 50 vocabulary words a week and test them on them, and then 50 more next week. It feels like the right thing to do because it indeed is raising the standards and inserting a sense of urgency, mm-hmm. but it's not actually teaching for the long term. It's a quick fix that probably won't last. So we take that sense of urgency and show teachers how to channel it into making immediate impacts on kids and focusing on the long term. As you look at the world of institutional assessment as it exists today with its focus on the test and teaching to the test and and, uh, measuring school performance by whether students have mastered certain content, do you feel like there's a policy challenge that we need to revise our thinking about how we assess whether students are learning and what their capabilities are? Sure. And the good news is I'm not the only one who realizes that the Common Core State Standards have been released with a focus on deeper learning, and all of Inspired Teaching's work is aligned with the Common Core State Standards, and our district partners are asking us to to focus our work on the Common Core Standards, and, and we're happy to do so. The assessments for the Common Core Standards are coming out soon, and the hope and expectation is that they will be much more holistic, look much more long-term. But I think broadly, the policy challenge is, is what is it that we really value in education and how do we assess it? Of course, what, what standardized tests measure certainly have their place. We need to know that kids can read a paragraph and answer some questions about it and add some numbers and get the right answer. Those are critical skills, but it's not enough. It's not sufficient. So the, st- the standardized tests, the kinds of questions we currently ask, have their place as part of a portfolio. If we ask kids to do authentic work to actually solve a, solve a complicated problem, to write a piece of authentic writing, to look at their writing over the course of a year and pull out their best and worst paper and explain why and explain what they've learned. If we can incorporate that kind of assessment along with the, the quick, quick look at do they know their basic facts, then we're, then we're actually assessing what, what matters. Uh, if we can offer assessments where kids get to work in teams because in very few jobs do you sit alone all day and recall information. So that, that ability to collaborate and solve problems collectively also needs to be assessed. If we can find ways to do that that are both authentic and efficient, then we'll be on the right track. And I think that's going to be our greatest challenge. We could certainly, everything I've said is being done, can be done, but can it be done at scale at a, at a price we can afford? I think that's the, challenge, that's the policy challenge. So if we're going to measure inspired teaching, we really are going to need to evolve stronger methods of assessment, more diverse methods of assessment. Is, do you think that's true? Yes, and I think they need to come 
from the authentic place of the workforce in which our students will be going. So, for right. instance, what what assessment does a scientist go through? What is what a scientist has to solve a real world problem and figure out something practical? How might we? What's the fifth grade version of that? Right? What's the twelfth grade version of that? What is a what is the what does a historian have to do? A historian has to actually offer some useful insight and and advice from the lessons of history that could influence future policy. How, what's the ninth grade version of that? I think if we start the question, if we start to answer the question of assessment from the way, the way that our content areas are used in the, in the professional world, we can get much closer to, to a useful assessment system for kids. Another question I have relates to the use of gaming in education. I'd love to get your perspective on this, and I'll just preface it by saying, so I'm, I'm, I have four children that are all still in school, in, in secondary schools, and, uh, and one of the things that astounds me as a parent is the way they are able to learn environments that are incredibly complex and challenging and to devote huge amounts of time to this uh, and be very successful at it and all the time be thinking of this as fun and play. And I look at this and I think to myself, wow, you know, if someone could harness this effectively for the school system, uh, what would education look like if it was transformed or if it, if it leveraged more <clears throat> of those kind of techniques? <clears throat> and yet when I go out into the world of gaming, I don't see that content. And I've often asked people in education policy, you know, is it coming? Where is it? Am I missing it? What's your perspective on this, uh, the potential for gaming as a way to help children uh, master uh, academic content? I think gaming is a very powerful tool. And if it's handled well, it can be very effective. Yeah. The, the thing that worries me is when gaming, or I would broaden it to say technology, is used as a replacement for a teacher and is used as simply a more efficient means of delivering content. In other words, a more efficient and faster means of doing, uh, of the teacher in the wrong role. Right. So that's my concern, right? The, the kid can race through the math problems faster. Uh, everybody can race through the math problems or go slowly at their own pace, and that's called differentiated learning. That, that's my concern about it. But when... The most important word that you just used in your question is the word play. Yeah. When kids, I believe certainly young children learn through play, and I actually think we all do. When kids can learn through play, through experimentation, through the wonder experiment learn cycle, when gaming or technology offers that opportunity, it can be a very powerful tool. You can also do that without technology. You can also have kids learn by going outside and looking for examples of symmetry and sketching them in their sketchbook. That can be done with an iPad or with a paper and pencil. So if the first question is, how do we engage kids in a thoughtful, meaningful learning experience? And the second question is, how can we leverage technology to do it? Then I think technology can be a very powerful tool. But if the first question is, how can we just sort of get the kids through the textbook faster? Right. Oh, well, we can put it online and, and then they can, you know, they can race through and the teacher doesn't have to work as hard. Then I think we've got, um, then we're headed in the wrong direction. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. 
from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our MLA interview with David Castro and Aliga Margolis, founder and executive director of Inspired Teaching. And it seems like your model really harnesses this idea in focusing on that concept of joy, which when it's present, learning just looks so different than when it's not present. And I, yeah. so when you see that word in your model, I just really react strongly to it. Um, I know you have at least four modalities that you're using in Inspired Teaching, and I wondered if you could just touch on them briefly. I'm, I'm referring to that you work with districts, you have a teacher certification program. Um, I think you also offer a teaching institute. Could you just sort of take us through that quickly in terms of how you actually go about your work? Yep. In our partnerships with districts, we focus on training district and school leaders as well as teachers to implement rigorous standards, including the Common Core, through our inquiry-based instructional model. And like with all our work, we engage teachers as partners. We're not delivering them professional development. We are engaging them as, as co-conspirators in making change in their districts. Uh, concretely right now, we are finishing up a partnership in Baltimore City Schools training middle school math teachers and looking to expand that work into implementing our instructional model in several several exemplar site schools and then spreading it throughout the district. In Washington, D.C., we are training all the middle school social studies teachers in our inquiry-based model and also working through our Inspired Teaching Institute training um, high school, middle school and high school teachers of all academic subject areas. All of our programs have a teacher leadership component, and that's, that's very important because it's part of our our focus on becoming sustainable. Becoming part of inspired teaching means means really joining a movement to change the way that children are educated. And so we're not interested in having just one group of kids get an excellent education. We want to create sustainable models that can be replicated in other districts across the country. That's why training experts who can then train their colleagues in the form of teacher leaders is a critical part of our model. Also, the, the Five core elements that start with mutual respect shape our teacher training as well as shape what we believe should happen in the classroom. So mutual respect means we start from an asset-based stance in our work with teachers. We have, we are, I am a teacher. My colleagues are teachers. We are teachers. We have great respect for our teachers who we work with. We don't come in and tell them the five easy tricks to teaching reading because there are not five easy tricks to teaching reading. Um, we engage them as leaders and we, we build their own skills so that they can then train their colleagues. We also have our Inspired Teacher Certification Program it is here in Washington, D.C. It's a state accredited 24-month teacher preparation program that prepares, supports, and certifies highly, qui highly qualified individuals to become early childhood and elementary school teachers here in D.C. Mm. The first year of the program is a residency year where teachers work under the guidance of a lead teacher either at our school, at the Inspired Teaching Demonstration School, or at another partner school. In the following year, the second year of the program, fellows become teachers of record, so full-time classroom teachers in D.C., 
and they continue with coursework and mentoring and we from Center for Inspired Teaching and we find people who are looking for a career in teaching, not a short-term stint, but a long-term career. We ask for a minimum of a five-year commitment to teaching in Washington, D.C. Do you find that there is a difference between working with people that have never taught before but are interested in teaching and then they come in to say, for example, your Inspired Teaching Institute versus trying to work with teachers that may have already had many years of experience? Is there a difference in, in, in the approach or in the outcome from your experience? Sure. The difference, of course, when you have new teachers is you don't have to undo any habits. Right. You can start from scratch. The challenge is you have to teach them everything. Right. Teach them how to take attendance and how to keep, you know, the, every, every detail. So it's, it's both more and less challenging with each group. Again, in working with, with more experienced teachers, you have to spend a lot of time, more time on the shift in mindset, but you also have people who have a lot of skill and a lot of experience to build on. Even teachers who have not been particularly successful have a lot of information and a lot of knowledge. And I know I, as an executive director, anything I know, it's because I've made the mistakes in the past. So we can certainly build on, on both people's successes and their failures in the past as we work with teachers. Um, in terms of success, we spend a great deal more time with our new teachers because it is a 24-month program that has, for instance, in the first few weeks when teachers are in the classroom, they have eight hours of mentoring per week. So it's a very, very intensive investment we make in each of our teaching fellows in our new teacher certification program. So those teachers certainly do um, have terrific results. And we use the, the class tool out of the University of Virginia that's been validated in over 6,000 classrooms and looks at teacher effectiveness as tied to student achievement. And our teaching fellows in the teacher certification program consistently and significantly outperform not only other new teachers, but other teachers, period, nationwide. And we're very proud of, of that result. Our teachers, our experienced teachers who take our institute or who are involved in our, school, our uh, district partnerships also improve tremendously in their practice. And we know that not only through their own reporting, but through the change in student work. For instance, in our middle school math partnership in Baltimore City, we saw a 52% improvement in students' math scores, and particularly in their critical thinking ability in math of teachers who participated in our program as compared with students of teachers who participated in our program as compared with a control group. And in D.C. in our middle school social studies partnership, it's focused around the literacy standards. So one of the things we're measuring is improved reading and writing ability in the students. And we've seen in our early results, that's a newer partnership, we've seen tremendous growth in students' writing ability and middle school students' writing ability, again, of the students in participating teachers' classrooms. Wow. So that really is validating a lot of your approaches to be able to see the impact on students, which is, of course, what we, when we started the conversation, that it's really about improving the experience for the students that are in the classroom by help, helping them to access an inspired teacher. Um, a relatively recent element in your work is the development of your demonstration school. And I've heard you say that a really critical element of social entrepreneurship is the ability to continue learning. So my question is, what have you learned uh, in the creation of your demonstration school? How, how is it influencing your work? Much more than I ever dreamed. <laughs> um, it has been an, an absolute labor of love and, and as advertised, an, an incredible undertaking. 
what's the reason we decided to start a demonstration school because we we did not want to create an island of excellence and that was our hesitation all along to open a charter school but we just we determined it was very important to have one site where we could demonstrate our model in action for all kinds of kids at all kinds of age levels and and collect longitudinal data and i'm so glad that we've done that our school is starts at preschool will grow to eighth grade it currently goes through fourth grade um, we just had our lottery for next year, and we had uh, between 60 and 70 openings because we had, of course, new two new classes of three-year-olds each year and a, a few spots in the upper grades. And for those 60 to 70 openings, we had over 900 applicants. So oh, my got, goodness. Yeah. We, it's both wonderful and, and not so good because we want every child to have this access to this kind of education. But what we hear parents tell us over and over, parents of students in our demonstration school, is that not only are they very happy to have their children in school in a school where they are thriving, but they're happy to be a part of a school that has a mission of making a difference district-wide and nationwide. That's not just about providing a great education for the kids in the school, but that seeks to influence the kind of education all kids experience. What have I learned in terms of the work involved in starting the school? Um, I've learned that I've learned there's a new group of allies for inspired teaching that have been relatively untapped, and that is parents. Mm. The parents of students at our demonstration school have been incredibly supportive of the mission of the instructional model. They come, we have 80 to 90% attendance at all of our all of our events for parents, including our parent education events, which we host because parents have asked for it. They want to know how they can support at home the way we teach math, the way we teach reading, the way we engage in a restorative justice approach to discipline. And they um, they really come and they contribute and they're they're very strong supporters not only of their children's school but of the inspired teaching model and that's something as an organization we want to figure out how do we engage parents more broadly because who cares more about the kind of education kids receive than than the parents and guardians of those children so we are we are thinking about how to take advantage of that as we grow as you know Ashoka has a huge emphasis now and a mission to promote empathy education and programs that of fellows that are working in increasing empathy among children. I'm wondering, can we talk a little bit about empathy and how do you approach the challenge of uh, introducing empathy as a critical concept for teachers and then into the curriculum for learners? From an academic perspective, it's actually a very practical tool. Our whole instructional approach is centered on the child. And so before any teacher designs or teaches a lesson, we encourage that teacher to ask the question, so what? And that means if I'm teaching a ninth grader and I'm teaching great expectations, the first question is, why should a ninth grader care about reading Charles Dickens? <laughs> and the answer can't be because it's on the test or because, trust me, you'll need this later. There has to be, you have to immediately put yourself in the place of the student and say, why might this be interesting, important, relevant to my students right now? And that's the place from which you design your lesson. That's the place from which you determine how you're going to, to go about instructing the students. And in order to answer that, you can answer that question in, in a theoretical sense, but in order to answer that question in a real sense, you have to ask, even if you teach great expectations every year and you've taught it for 25 years, you need to ask the question anew each year because you have a new group of students. And in order to answer the question effectively, you need to know your students and you need to know their interests. And we do a lot of work with teachers around building their relationships with students as a mandate for teaching effectively. Again, it's not a nice to have, 
it's a must-have. So it's, it's a lot to ask of teachers who can have over 100 students in a high school classroom. We're, we're in a high school setting. We're very aware of it. But to be able to know one or two or three important pieces of information about each child beyond just their reading scores, but what they care about, what's important to them, um, that's when, when we teach our teachers how to do data-driven instruction, we not only teach them how to analyze test scores, how to analyze student achievement data, we also teach them how to collect observational data on how does the student approach an unfamiliar problem? How does the student solve a conflict among friends? How does, what does the student do when she's faced with a kind of problem she's never seen before? That's data that can then drive instruction, but it forces you to take a position of empathy to think, I wonder what the student might be thinking right now, and how can I use that information to drive my instruction? Empathy is also a core element in our approach to discipline and building a classroom community. We ah. take a restorative justice approach to discipline, and that means, in a, in a phrase, you break it, you fix it. Ah. So if you do something to harm our community, you don't get three demerits and sent out in the hall for 20 minutes and then you're back in. You actually have to repair the damage that you've done. Ah. Because if I, if I, as the teacher and the judge, meeting out consequences, then I've in some ways relieved you, the student, of the responsibility for upholding our community values. That doesn't mean there are consequences. Of course there are. Sure. But they happen within a context of you, the student, having real responsibility and ownership in our community. So in our demonstration school, we have three rules, and they are everybody learns, everybody is safe, and everybody builds the community. Ah. That's it. Each classroom then may create a much longer version of those three rules at an age-appropriate level, but that's the basis of our work. So if you cheat on a test, you have prevented yourself from learning, you've, not, you've done the opposite of building our community, and you can argue in some ways that you've compromised safety. So we can take any, any behavioral infraction and look at it within the context of, of our three key rules that, again, are based on each student developing a sense of empathy for the other students, for the teachers, and also the teachers developing a sense of empathy for, for the students. So, again, it starts with meeting, meeting the needs of the students rather than getting them to comply with the rules. So really what I'm hearing you saying is that uh, you take a very strong approach to empathy in developing teachers who are more uh, empathic in, in reading their classroom, and then in terms of building the classroom culture and in the whole response to discipline and, and what kind of a, a community that you're going to have, that empathy becomes embedded in your practice. Yes, and it's empathy not only as a social skill, but or not as a social skill and as an intellectual skill. Right. Our belief, we're, we base it a lot in the work of, of the psychologist William Glasser, who says if somebody is, is doing something harmful to the community, or as you could say misbehaving, it's because a need is not being met. It's not because they're a bad kid or, or they want to make trouble. It's because some of, one of their needs is not being met. We take that approach, and so if my job as a teacher is to build a positive classroom community and somebody is doing something disruptive, the first question I ask is not, how do I get them to cut it out, though it may be what I'd like, <laughs> what I'd like to ask. The first question I ask is, what need is not being met for that student that's causing him to make that choice? And that's, that's exhausting and fabulous work for the teacher to have to try and get inside the head of each child. And it could be as simple as, he didn't have breakfast today, or it could be much more complex. 
Tell me about the future, Aletta, you, your vision for the coming years of, of Center for Inspired Teaching. We are piloting some exciting new programs in our partner districts, one in the Next Generation Science Standards and continued work in the, the already released uh, English Language Arts and Math Standards. And we expect these programs to be replicated in other districts across the country. So we're very excited about creating, creating some new programs in a way that they will be meant to be taken elsewhere in the country. We're also developing a plan to leverage online learning so that we can reach exponentially more teachers. Our work to date has been almost entirely face-to-face. -face. We've had great results, but as we look to scale our work, we want to find a way to leverage technology so that we can train many more teachers through a blended model where we'll have some face-to-face -face training and some online training. And those are the, so replicating some district work, leveraging technology to reach many more teachers are two areas in which we, we will be growing a lot in the future. We're coming to the end of our time, and I'd like to just shift the lens a little bit and have you talk about your experience and your inspiration as a social entrepreneur. And I'd like to share this wonderful quote that I've heard you share uh, from Martha Graham. I think it means something very important to you. <clears throat> it's Martha Graham said, you have to keep open and aware directly to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. No artist is pleased. There is no satisfaction whatever at any time. There is only a queer divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. Uh, such a terrific quote, and I, I was, uh, it was wonderful to hear you say that. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that for people who may be listening and have uh, a motivation or an ambition as a social entrepreneur what does this matter of the blessed unrest mean, and how has it affected your work? It affects my work on a day-to-day -day basis as well as, on a, as well as the big picture. On a day-to-day -day basis, all of our courses with teachers begin with talking about Martha Graham's divine dissatisfaction. We say to teachers, I'm here as your leader, because, as your instructor, because I think I'm a good teacher and I think I can be better, and I expect that you're here for the same reason. So it immediately puts us into an asset-based frame of mind. You're not here because you're bad and someone needs to fix you. You're here because you're committed to your own continuous improvement. So it's very practical in that it's the underpinning of, of the way that we train teachers. From an organizational big picture perspective, I use Martha Graham's words to help my colleagues and me stay focused on our long-term vision that one day every child will experience inspired teaching and every child will be taught by an instigator of thought. And at the same time, we measure that against making sure we celebrate the small victories on a day-to-day -day basis because the work of, of any social entrepreneur is, by definition, long and, and it's, shifting a, it's shifting a paradigm that may or may not happen even within your own lifetime. And so while you can be fueled and motivated by a lofty and exciting and audacious goal, also, I have learned it's very important to set small goals and be able to celebrate small victories and appreciate the progress that you've made toward this larger goal. The other thing I've learned is the importance of partnerships. That, none of, that I think the, the challenge of most social entrepreneurs, myself included, is that at least at some point in our lifetimes we think we can do it all by ourselves. And as I've grown older, I've realized that, that that's not the case, but I have a lot to contribute, and if I can 
combine my efforts with those of partner organizations doing similar work or complementary work, we can have a much deeper impact. Ah, such uh, important words of wisdom for people out there who are planning their own change-making. Um, the best way to reach or support your center would be uh, to look for you on the web at inspiredteaching.org. If that's the right website. Yes, that's And right. are you also on Facebook? We are. Facebook backslash would be Inspired Teaching? Yes. Okay, and, we, and we'll put those links up when this uh, interview goes up on the web. We'll put the links up uh, there as well. Wonderful. Aletta, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you, and, and thank you for your inspiring work, inspiring teachers. Thanks, David. It was wonderful talking with you, too. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.